Hello, church family. Hi. We are the Rufes with Callum, and we are in Port Loma. We are excited to read today uh, from the Gospel of Luke, from verse 1 to 10 in French. So here we go. Okay, verse 1. Jésus entra dans la ville de Jéricho et la traversa. Or, il y avait là un nommé Zachée. Il était chef des collecteurs d'impôts et riches. Il cherchait à voir qui était Jésus, mais il ne le pouvait pas à cause de la foule, car il était petit. Alors il courut en avant et grimpa sur un sycomore pour voir Jésus qui devait passer par là. Verse 5. Lorsque Jésus fut parvenu à cet endroit, il leva les yeux et l'interpella. Zachée, dépêche-toi de descendre, car c'est chez toi que je dois aller loger aujourd'hui. Verse 6. Zachée se dépêcha de descendre et reçut Jésus avec joie. Quand les gens virent cela, il y eut un murmure d'indignation. Ils disaient, voilà qu'il s'en va loger, c'est ce pécheur. Verse 8. Mais Zachée se présenta devant le Seigneur et lui dit, Seigneur, je donne la moitié de mes biens aux pauvres, et si j'ai pris trop d'argent à quelqu'un, je lui rends quatre fois plus. Jésus lui dit alors, aujourd'hui le salut est entré dans cette maison, parce que cet homme est, lui aussi, un fils d'Abraham. Car le fils de l'homme est venu chercher et sauver ceux qui étaient perdus. Hello, my name is BJ Thompson, and I serve as the director of an organization called Build a Better Us. I am so excited to be here with you guys today to share a word of encouragement on the spirit of reconciliation. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, these last few months have been very strange. Um, even the fact that I'm coming to you um, online, typically I would show up in the city um, and I would be lapelling up and I would be speaking to a live audience. And These last few months um, of COVID-19 have been very interesting because they have created this new experience called Shelter at Home. And, you know, at first I'm an introvert, and so initially I thought it was fun to be inside all day and to be away from people because I believe it's going to be a great thing for an introvert. What I was not anticipating was that I was not just going to be alone by myself introverting out, right? Um, but I was going to be with my family, <laughs> and I was going to be with my kids, All three kids, I have a 16, 12, and 10 year old. Y'all pray for me, okay? Uh, and then I'm also gonna be with my wife all day, um, who we just celebrated 18 years of marriage. And what I realized was as the weeks have gone on and as months have gone on, that you know, the things that we thought we agreed on or we didn't have issues with, all of a sudden they're issues, right? And, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, but when you have relationships that you think are set in stone and they are the way they are and they just function a certain way. And all of a sudden, um, there is something that happens that creates or reveals a deep divide that unexpectedly comes. And now you have to deal with it. And that's where I think we are as a nation. I think that in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is as a people, Um, as a collective nation, we have come to a place where we are seeing divides like we've never seen before, right? And so a, a lot of things that um, were normal and okay um, and, and just assumed are now up for question. And, you know, there's been a lot of tense moments around justice, uh, around faith, around reconciliation. And we're asking, what is the church going to say? Right. And so I want to walk us through hopefully what is a gentle conversation around scripture and reconciliation, because oftentimes when we get to these places of the conversation, 
we either check out, um, we resolve that we know um, everything we're going to know, and so we become stubborn, or um, we're paralyzed. We're paralyzed with the fear of what could happen or what could be said and the ways that it could change in ways that we are unexpected. And, and what I want us to do as you hear me unpack this idea of reconciliation, I want us to think about this one word, right, as we talk about scripture and reconciliation, and it's the word love. Love is the power that will ultimately not only unite us, but it will free us, right? And when you think about love in the context of reconciliation, that's what makes love, that's what makes reconciliation meaningful, is that we now get a fuller dosage or experience for love. And so as we talk a little bit more today, again, and I'm trying to ease my way into the subject about reconciliation around race and justice and God, I want you to keep in your mind that the ultimate goal of all of these talks is love. And that when you get to those places, love can bear um, all things and it can, it can um, cover a multitude of sins, okay? So, so what, are, what is it that's the issue, okay? What is it that's the issue? Why are people marching in the streets? Why is there all of a sudden a breakdown? And I think that there is a breakdown because for the first time, many of us have had to come front and center with our relationships with one another in ways that have been very uncomfortable, specifically around the areas of race and specifically around the areas of justice. Some of us have come from backgrounds where um, we have this very um, monogamous experience of justice or policing or race and relations and now we're, we're looking up and we're forced to deal with an alternative reality. Or some of us have come from a very um, multi-ethnic or um, cultural experience of these things. And we grew up with all these different backgrounds and where we don't see a difference, we just see our friends, we see people, right? And so now we don't understand why people have an issue with others. Some of us come in with a blank slate. Some of us are coming to a place where we just don't know anything about it. We have always drank from the same news outlets. We've, we drink from the same, um, you know, feeds on social media. We drink from the same um, cultural, um, geographical areas and everything that comes along with it. We drink from the same political wells. And now for the first time, all of these different people are being forced to come together or all of these different people are finding themselves wanting to come together. And what I'll say is, is that the Church of Jesus Christ has a unique opportunity in all of this, right? I know that oftentimes it can be scary, it can be overwhelming, um, it can be paralyzing. But what I believe is that the church has an overwhelming opportunity to step into the areas of justice, and step into the areas of race, and step into the areas of culture and shalom with one word, and that's with the gospel. Right. What are some ways that we get stuck? I just I'll quickly go into this and then I'll talk about the text. OK. How do we get stuck in this conversation? Right? Why, why are we often paralyzed by this idea of having to love one another in a reconciling way? Like, you know, I love that you guys have been going through the spirit. Um, talking about the work of the Spirit, what the Spirit does, not just in the life of the believer, 
but in the life of those who do believe, the family of faith, right? And as we talk about this idea of things that hinder us from the work of grace, things that keep us from being in the full image of God, oftentimes it's things that we need to shed that we have learned our entire lives as the norm, right? So here's a couple of things that I believe keep us from fully being reconciled. Um, to one another in a way that reveals the glory of God in the world, in the midst of culture, right? So the first thing I think that keeps us from being reconciled or experiencing reconciliation is the idea that when we come to some of these conversations, whether it's on sexual orientation, race, gender roles, whatever the the non-dominant conversation, um, it becomes too hard, right? Um, there's a lot of thinking. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, introspection. Um, there's a lot of um, information you have to consume. There is a lot of unlearning and relearning of things. And so one of the first things that keeps us from being fully reconciled is that we don't like the hard work, right? We love to know that what we've done is what we can always do, right? And that becomes problematic because the scripture says to love God, to love yourself, uh, to love yourself, but I mean, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so we start having this rub because a lot of us, in order to become the full scope of what God wants for us, we have to then become um, very aware of our neighbors in an informed way. So one, we oftentimes deflect to the fact that it's too hard. Two, um, we are hyper-individualistic. You know, one of the things that is very clear to me, and it's a challenge that we face, is that we love to draw lines. We hate to create bridges. I'll say that again. Too often times we love to draw lines, political lines, geographical lines. Um, we love to draw racial lines. We love to draw um, socioeconomic lines. We love to draw those lines we struggle to build bridges. And that's because we are hyper-individualistic, right? And I'll mention this as I go on in this text, but I wanna say something to you. When you think about the Jewish mind, you think about what Jehovah Adonai did for his people. He was never just saving a person, he was always saving a people, right? And so a lot of us struggle with this hyper-individualistic mind so that when we come to social narratives around justice, around race, around equality, around love, around all these different things, it's really hard for us to see outside of our scope. And so one of the greatest challenges for us moving forward is we think too much like individuals and not enough like a society and not enough like a people, right? Here's the last thing I want to get into before I get into this message. The thing that keeps us from being reconciled. It's what I believe keeps us from being reconciled. Instead of dealing with the issues held on um, with our emotions and going through the process of grieving and channeling in maturity, uh, emotional maturity, we oftentimes default to guilt, right? You know, even as I think about this conversation, some of the things that I wish I could say, um, not just to my white brothers and sisters um, specifically, but to all people, 
sometimes it's very difficult because I feel myself shying back because I understand that the moment you begin to talk about difficult things, people will feel guilt and they will shut down. And once that guilt settles in, a lot of the things that you're saying begin to not um, gain traction or move forward. And so what keeps us from being reconciled? It's guilt, right? Um, it's shame. It's we kind of know this, but we didn't know it. And now when we need to love our neighbor, we cannot because we're still thinking about the fact that we did not know. And I want to I propose to you something today as we get into this message. That neither the way of hyper-individualism, the road that's too hard to understand others, nor the way of guilt, is sufficient for God's church. I'll say it again. Neither the way of hyper-individualism, too hard to process, to understand the differences in perspective, nor the way of emotional guilt is sufficient for God's church. There has to be a different way. And what's that way? The gospel is the way that's sufficient for God's people and God's church, right? So we need to learn a new way, right? And we're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a reconciled people. We have to begin to do the work of unlearning and relearning and living out the new way. Because God has left us here in this world. Remember, say this after me. Our Father, which are in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about that. Thy kingdom come, not when I make it to heaven, but thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? You see, the goal of the church is to bring down God's kingdom onto earth from heaven. And so we have a job, right? This is one of the reasons why we're so excited to partner with Park Hill. If you go to the justice tab, you'll see that Build a Better Us, um, the you know, Equal Justice Initiative, and all these different things are partnered. You, are, you guys are partnered with these entities in order to see shalom, in order to see families transform all throughout the world, right? And so our goal is to bring the gospel in a way that makes this clear, right? Today, I want to share two ways um, that will give us um, clarity on the way forward and reconciliation. One, it's how the gospel reconciles us to God, right? And then two is how the gospel reconciles us to one another. Okay? Let's talk about the first point, how the gospel recon reconciles us to God. We'll just read this passage. Um, I'm in Luke 19, um, and I'm going to read um, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it, and then we'll explain it. Okay? It says this, um, he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking 
to see who Jesus was, but not on account of the crowd. He could not because he was of a small stature. So he ran on to the right ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And then Jesus came to his place. He looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And when he said it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, right? You know, this man, Zacchaeus, um, was known as a chief tax collector. He was of the Roman Empire, uh, more than likely Jewish, and he was collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. But he was not just collecting taxes. Remember, God told Abraham he was giving him a blessing of um, land and seed. Uh, in blessing, right? So the way that the Jews viewed the idea of being in Israel was that God had given them that land. We saw that with Joshua, right? That the Lord had given them that land. And it was their rightful inheritance. You see that they fought and they had the rightful inheritance to the land. So to pay taxes on that land was to say that someone else was in ownership of those things. So insert Zacchaeus, right? Here he is a tax collector, but he's not just a regular tax collector. It says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That means that Zacchaeus was the upper management, right? He was going around making sure that Rome were going to get their money, right? And you know, as we go on in the text, and he'll reveal later that he was so wealthy, not because he was following the rules, but because Zacchaeus was getting money through ill gain. So in some ways, he was extorting the Jews in the name of Rome, right? So when Jesus, Yeshua, came into town, right? Zacchaeus, a man of faith, a man who had lost his way, not his worth. Um, uh, who was longing to connect with God, went because the crowds were so impressed upon him. And he was of short stature. He was already of a disadvantaged state. That's why he took advantage of others in different ways. He went and he climbed a tree, right? I don't know about you, but if you're a person of posture and position and status in the world, you don't do humiliating things unless there's someone who's worthy to be seen, right? So here is Zacchaeus who humiliates himself in order to see the savior, right? What does Jesus say, right? When he looks up and sees this short man in the street, what does he say? He says, um, so he ran on ahead, climbed a tree uh, before he was about to say, and he said, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. Here's what happened. Zacchaeus, a man of power, a man of status, yet a man who was, was of extortion, a man who was a, a greedy man, a man who was recognized as a sinner, one who would defile the temple, one who would defile Adonai, 
one who would defile the things that were sacred in the name of money. Humiliated himself, right? What do you see Yeshua do? What do you see Jesus do? Jesus says what? He said, hurry, come down, for I must stay with you in your house. So he hurried down, and he came to receive him joyfully, right? What did Jesus do? Jesus said, you humiliated yourself. Listen, let me show you that I'm going to humble myself, right? And then those who saw it grumbled against him. Let me tell you what's going on here. Here is a man that everyone knew was unworthy. Um, not because someone had made him unworthy, but because his deeds reflected that thing. That he was a man who in all intent would, would desecrate all that was sacred for the sake of wealth, right? And Zacchaeus hits this place where he is desperate, right? Now, he doesn't know. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to the priest. He does the only desperate thing he does, the only desperate thing he knows, and he humiliates himself. Why? Because whatever Jesus had was worth more than all he possessed, right? You know, oftentimes when I think about this and we talk, start talking about justice and we start talking about reconciliation, we think that justice and reconciliation starts with the idea that we join a movement, right? And the reason why that's a problem is because it says that if I get right with man, then all things will be right. And what we realize is that much of the issue that we have in our life is not the outworking of how we see other people. Much of the issues that we have in our life is the fact that we are unreconciled to God, right? That there's something spiritual that needs to happen within our wells and to transform us into the newness of life to create in us new desires so that we walk in a way that don't make sense. But let me ask you a question. When you, when you think about this passage and we talk about reconciliation, that reconciliation is not just, you know, the relationship that you have horizontally with other people, but it's vertically. Who initiates the relationship? It's Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to take you where you are, right? Here's what I want to encourage you in. Right? Let's just say you are watching this and you are thinking about all of the things you don't get right. I don't know if you like me, but I don't get stuff right. It drives me crazy, right? Like I mess up all the time. I'm finding myself always messing up, right? But it's in those moments where it's clear to me that I am not getting it right, that the place for the cross and the grace of God really began to take his work. Right. And why do we need this? Why do we need this thing? We need this because if we don't have it, we're unable to see the working of Yeshua. We're, able, we're unable to see the experience, the joy of his grace. Right. One of the greatest challenges, I believe, to the church as they try to participate in this idea of shalom and justice in the world is that we're always trying to fix those people out there. Right. We love to go help them. We want to do things in sex trafficking. We think about what's happening in children who are not getting meals after school. And we think a lot about, you know, what's happening with people who are homeless and people who are despaired. And, and one of the things that happens is we begin to develop a sense of paternalism. 
Because what we see in those people are just poor people who can't get themselves together. When the reality of, of, the, of the situation is, we should be seeing ourselves in the way that God is meeting us. And then out of that way that he's met us, now we express that generosity and joy, right? Why is this important, right? I'll just, I'll kind of close with this point. It's important because in order for us to gain the rewards of heaven, we have to be reconciled to God. And that didn't come by merit. That didn't come by your money. That couldn't come by your status. That didn't come by how many Zoom meetings, how many church meetings you show up for. That has everything to do with God meeting you in a humiliated place, no matter your status. And then out of that brokenness, you then operate and experience joy because you really can't believe that he did it for you, right? What's one practical thing we can do? Instead of seeing ourselves as these superior moral beings who are somehow keeping up with, you know, whatever trend of faith, we need to see ourselves as those who are equally or just as much or even more desperate than those who we pity in the world. Because it's in that humiliation of ourselves that we start seeing the humbleness, right? Um, the, the, what do you call the, the humble, I don't know, it's not humility, the humility, the humility of Jesus and then the humanity of Christ that is meeting us and creating joy, right? So the first thing is we have to be reconciled to God, okay? But nothing else is bigger than that, okay? Let's talk a little bit about this and then I'll start moving in. We have to be reconciled to one another. And this is going to really high, highlight a lot of my point, okay? And, and this is what the text says. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, on the half of my goods, I give to the poor. Um, if I've defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to your house. And since he is also a son of Abraham, for the man has, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost, right? Zacchaeus, a high priest, a, um, I'm a high priest, a high tax collector, starts to realize, oh man, I am free that whatever has happened to me, that this encounter with God has created in me a transformation that has led to meaningful generosity, right? And that generosity began to create restitution because he was in a state of sobriety for that which he had taken before, right? You know, one of the greatest challenges that we see in the American church is that the, we call it the constant state of denial, right? That, you know, we are getting oftentimes revisions history. Um, we're getting a lot of thoughts around, you know, cultural Marxism. We're getting a lot of ideas around critical race theory. So even as we attempt to engage ideas of culture, race, justice, peace, shalom, there's so much disruption to our narratives, right? And, and, and what happens is, 
it starts to build this great tension between us, right? There, there's this wedge, and you guys feel it, right? You see it online. It's like, where's a wedge between you and me? And here we are, the church in the world, and yet we don't even feel a sense of comfort between a connection between you and I, because it feels like every time we start to get into the conversation, there's a wedge, there's a new conversation, there's a new cultural Marxism, there's this new thing. And all these different things create the distraction that causes from experiencing true reconciliation in our life, right? And I want to say to us, the problem with reconciliation is because a lot of times we don't understand the offense and what it is that restitution looks like. Here's what I mean. Right. And when I when a couple, when my wife and I argue, okay, and I say something that I shouldn't, and I'm upset with her, and she's upset with me, and now we need to reconcile. Well, because I just said something that I should not have said, or wrote something I should not have written on Facebook to her. Now the only means for reconciliation. It's an apology, right? I'm sorry, right? Forgive me. Um, individually, I made a mistake, right? I think that what we do in a conversation on race, and I think that what we're doing in this conversation on culture is we're treating it as if the offense was simply a disagreement of political, economic, racial, um, and worldview and experiential difference, right? And because we're treating it like this, remember we talked about individualism, hyper-individualism, and we're looking at our hyper-individual situation. Now, as we look at it, it's, it's causing us to miss that there's something greater in offense, right? We feel like, what more can I do, right? And it's because, in a lot of ways, we have skipped the hard work, right? What if I, and this is case in point, what if I have burned my wife, um, you know, with some type of object abuse her? I have um, broken our vows, you know, sexually and morally, right? Um, and I have done some very grievous things to her. Let me ask you a question. Would sorry be enough? No. Why? Because the impact of my actions do not match the restitution or the reconciliation I'm attempting to offer, right? Here's what I think we need to hear in this conversations in race family. I think that because we don't understand the, in, the impact of our actions, whether it's what we have done or what our forefathers have done, when we attempt to create reconciliation, it feels like I'm sorry as opposed to restitution. And I'll just say this to you. You know, when you think about it, especially in America, um, there's a good book called The Color of Compromise by my good friend and my colleague, Jamar Tisby. He talks about how the Christian church in America was complicit in racism from the beginning. Um, he starts with the Puritans um, on the slave boats. Um, he goes into George Whitfield, who is the father of evangelicalism. 
walks into the Southern Baptist Convention, um, which created the largest, one of the largest Christian denominations in the world, Protestant denomination in the world, and yet it was founded on slave owning and being a missionary. Um, he goes into the Southern Christian um, Foundation and how, in a lot of ways, they would highly oppose the MLK. And then you go into the research of today, right? What we see is that the Christian church has been complicit in the plunder, the robbery, and the dehumanization of people based off of color. And so when we try to offer help, we try to create resolve, oftentimes we just resolve to say, either I don't know, I wasn't a part of that, or I'm sorry, right? When in fact, what Zacchaeus realizes was that the only way to create shalom was to begin to do things to create restitution. What does the text say? What does he say he does? He says, behold the Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And I, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's what I want to say to us, application. Because racism is about power and money, and we created social caste systems around it, Part of the redemptive work of the church is to create restoration, not just around race talks and conversations, but around the things that you're doing in, again, Park Hill, in your justice initiative. It's restitution through equality of power and through money. Here's, Here's kind of what I mean. If the church is bringing down heaven to earth, Heaven is filled with people from all nations, tongues, and tribes, all worshiping God in one family, under one Christ, under one spirit, under one baptism, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. When we relate to one another as brothers and sisters, now we see, oh man, I am unlearning the things of this world. I am unlearning things of my political outlets. I am unlearning the things of this world. And I am learning the things of God. And what that's going to mean is when I see my brother and sister of need in forms of inequality and power and wealth, I'm not paternalizing them. What am I doing? I'm empowering them. Right? I'm creating tangible restitution. Right? I had a conversation with a prominent leader, and as I mentioned to him um, what was going on, he said, BJ, I really appreciate your heart, your voice, and what you do, and I can't wait to keep listening. Right? And I said, you know, I just, I want to say something to you. I think that may be the greatest problem of the white church is that when it comes to every issue in life, you're listening and learning and then you're acting. But for whatever reason, when we get to this place of conversation about race and restitution, there's something in you that you will not allow you to act. And I said, you need to start seeing that through the book of James when he says, if your neighbor says to you, I need food, and you say you you want to pray for them, that that is an act of faithlessness, right? And here's what we can do, right? I just want to land this a little bit more. For the church to be the church, 
we are not predicating what we do based off of our actions. We know that the reconciliation first starts between you and God and us and God, right? But we also realize that God is not saving a person. He's saving a people. And because he's saving a people, he's saving us collectively as one another. And now we are trying to bring, right, heaven on earth. So restitution is not us paying reparations necessarily. It's us creating godly reconciliation that reflect the offense that actually occurred. And what I would say is now the church has to be intentional about supporting justice in a world that create repair, right? Here's one way of repair. And this thing drives me crazy. So we will create things that will serve minority serve entities. We'll say feed the children, you know, things with trafficking, um, things with single moms. Um, and there'll be a, a person of majority culture over it, right? I want you to see this, right? You're like, wow, all of these entities have people of majority culture. And, and I think that one of the reasons why we do that is we feel like we can trust that. We're like, man, there's someone who looks like me over this. Therefore, this is something that's worthy to be done, right? What I would say is restitution looks very different than that. Restitution is not just investing intentionally, strategically as a church in minority serve, but it's restitution is creating intentional acts in minority owned entities. It makes sense. That it's not just minority serve, that we're not just finding people in hunger, people in trafficking, people that need things restored in family and justice, but it's minority owned. How are we as a church creating restitution? We empower the saints for the work of the ministry. I'll end with this. How can you play in this work, right? What are some ways God is convicting you? What are some ways that the, that, that, that the gospel is moving you? Because reconciliation is oftentimes going to involve restitution. And, and, and similar to the rich man who came and asked, what can I do to be saved? And listed all these different things. Jesus said, sell all your things to the poor and then come follow me, right? That mean that we take on the poor man's mind. It means that there's nothing that we possess that is greater than what we have in Jesus. And now everything we have, we're using as stewardship out of, the, out of the expression of the joy that he's given us, right? So here's my question to you. What are you doing with those resources? How are you leveraging your privilege? How are you creating these things? Not for some liberal agenda, not from a conservative agenda, but from a gospel agenda that seeks to create restitution in a way that brings glory to God on the earth as it is in heaven. Thank you guys for listening.